This is Arab Talk on KPOO 89.5 FM in San Francisco. This is Arab Talk with Justin Jamal. I'm Jasran Nam. And I'm Jamal Dejani. Jamal, we have a really exciting and awesome show today. We're going to be speaking with uh, Rania Masri and Anis uh, Germani about the really the situation in Lebanon, which I feel comfortable saying is is pretty catastrophic right now with the political unrest, the refugee issue, and the economic collapse. And you did a really excellent interview with both of them, and we'll be talking to them about that. But then afterwards, we've got some really exciting topics to share with our viewers and our listeners. Uh, first and foremost, we now have terrorist ice cream, Ben & Jerry's announced, that they will be boycotting uh, Israeli settlements, selling their products within illegal Israeli settlements. And the firestorm that has generated uh, against Ben & Jerry has been pretty extreme. We'll be reviewing that. And of course, you know, the big news that I consider really high on the agenda is that the apartheid regime of Israel has been uh, selling buy software to countries that has allowed them to spy on uh, journalists, maybe even diplomats. And, uh, you know, the it looks like that's the same software that, you know, was involved in the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, the Saudi uh, journalist who was murdered brutally in, in Turkey. And then finally, we're going to hear from you talking about, I'm not sure what to call it, Jamal. It's supposed to be a CNN special on Jerusalem. I'm I'm not as optimistic, but we'll be talking to you about that too. You covered it all, Jess, and you're absolutely right, but we're going to start with, with Lebanon, and this is uh, with everything uh, going on in the world, uh, you don't hear about Lebanon. And, we don't. And Le yeah. Lebanon is on the brink of collapse. Uh, we have two excellent guests, Dr. Rani Al-Masri and, of course, uh, Anis Germani. Let's uh, listen to them explain what's going on in the country. Lebanon has been run by a caretaker administration for nearly a year. While its currency has collapsed, jobs have vanished, and banks have frozen accounts in what lenders have called one of the most severe financial crises of modern times. Joining us to discuss this and more, Rani Al-Masri, a university professor and member of the political movement Muwatinun wa Muwatinat fi Dawla, translated as Citizens in a State, also joining us from Beirut, Anis Germani, a political activist and a medical doctor. Welcome to Arab Talk. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Let me start with you, Rania. Uh, last time uh, you were on the show, things were pretty bad. This was right after the horrific explosion of almost 3,000 tons of ammonium nitrate stored for six years in a warehouse uh, in the port. Now, Saad al-Hariri, who as prime minister-designate, who, who has been trying to form a new government for nine months, recently announced that he was stepping down. Is this bad or positive news? Um, it is neither bad nor positive. Uh, it is simply a step sideways, not a step forward, and I would argue not even a step backwards. As Saad al-Hariri has proved time and time again his utter incompetence at leading the country forward. He has proved himself to be hostage to foreign interests as well as hostage to the sectarian system within Lebanon. 
So to ask this very man, who, by the way, had resigned in October 2019, to ask this very man to lead the country forward is, is ludicrous, is ludicrous. What would have happened to Lebanon had he actually established a government of individuals that are also hostage to foreign interests, that also want to push the country forward in terms of privatizing what remains of our natural resources and our commodities and continue to export our youth? So it's not a good thing that he wasn't able, you know, they, it's not necessarily a bad thing that he wasn't able to form a government. Now, on the other hand, it is a bad thing that the very same sectarian leaders continue to hold on to these relics of sectarianism instead of recognize the situation that we're in in the country. We are in, without exaggeration, the harshest period of our existence since we were established as a state. Without any exaggeration, this is the most difficult period that we are in. And the sectarian system has shown itself very clearly to be simply incapable of leading the country forward. So it, among everything that has happened from 2019 onwards, I hope that this has become clear to, to everyone, that the very same individuals within the very same sectarian system can only take the country further into ruin and catastrophe. I want to get back to the to the government makeup, but, but uh, Anis, like how bad things are, how, just how difficult is life to the average Lebanese? Well, that's the thing. Um, it's, it's, um, it's tricky when we look at the news and we see things are bad, but it's very hard to actually understand the, the implications on, daily, on the daily lives of people. For example, I mean, our currency has dropped, has been devalued by 90% since the start of the crisis. We used to buy $1 with 1,500 lira. Now we need 22,000 lira to buy just $1. Wow. And this has terrible consequences, not just on the savings of people, because not everybody to begin with had savings, but it's more, most the most important uh, consequence is on the income of people, because um, the, the salaries have not been adjusted. For example, me, a doctor, I make $50 a month now. I used to make 800. Wow. So this, this reflects terribly on, on purchasing power. And we're not talking about a society that, that, has been, that had been faring well before the crisis. It's a, it's a society that has been plagued by inequality and by, by difficult access to jobs. That is why we have mass migration. And, and once we start looking at people, uh, at, at the refugees who are in Lebanon, we're talking about 2 million people, here things get catastrophic. For example, the UN recently did a study and they found that 75% of Lebanese people are not eating their fill. But when you look at refugees, it's 99%. This is, this is, this is I don't know, it's a, a humanitarian crisis in the making. Uh, if we, and now we were almost at the end of the road, of the road in terms of um, how much money is left in Lebanon. So what, the so-called subsidies are being lifted. And uh, recently, only last week, uh, the prices of some medications was uh, multiplied uh, 16 times and the fuel prices have almost doubled and uh, the price of bread keeps on increasing gradually. And these uh, these things like we, we still haven't understood or like haven't seen the full scope of, of the crisis. So uh, for decades, uh, Riyadh Salami, 
Lebanon Central Bank chief was loaded at home and abroad. I kept reading about him as a financial wizard who kept the economy running and the currency stable despite wars, assassinations, and frequent uh, political turmoil. This is how the Western media, and this is how actually the Lebanese media described him as. Not anymore. I, I, I mean, this has totally changed. Uh, what went wrong? Well, um, the thing is that uh, we need to understand the nature of the system. So, uh, and if I may add, by the way, uh, he was also awarded the best uh, central bank governor of the year at some point by Wall Street, um, which is really funny now. But um, the thing about the system, the Lebanese economic system, is that it did not produce a single thing. This is this is the only reason why it was never affected by anything at all. There were never any kind of investments, neither in real estate, nor in, in, or nor in um, industry or agriculture. So whatever happened, if there was a natural catastrophe, if there's a war, if there's the 2008 crisis that happened and like all of these things never affected Lebanon because, you know, the, the whole point of the Lebanese economy was just to attract foreign capital and, and give, in, give in return high interest rates. And for that reason, you had these elites in Western countries that were profiting from that system for whatever reasons, because, you know, um, rich people, they just uh, move their money around it as long as they're making profit, they don't mind. But as soon as things turn, you know, they're not gonna, they're not gonna stay on the, on the contrary. They're going to pressure, they're gonna uh, exercise maximum pressure to get their investment back. And otherwise they, they even don't care about uh, the system that they supported, uh, whether through media or through their, their even their, their capital. So uh, here we are, this is just the end of the road of a system that was not viable. And honestly, we should be surprised that, that it was able to sustain to be sustained for, for 30 years. It was it was supposed to fail within the first few years, and it did. But it was constantly being uh, upheld by, by these foreign powers. Rania, do you uh, see Lebanon as a failed state? Um, I have a problem with that term, failed state, because it is typically made by the very governments themselves that have a hand in making sure that the state fails. So I, I, I'm always hesitant to use terms that are themselves historically problematic. But to answer your question specifically, no, Lebanon is not a failed state because Lebanon is not a state. <laughs> it first has to be a state for it to fail. For it to be a state means you need to have a governing body that actually in some way or another works to represent all its citizens and works to ensure that its citizens have a place in the country. So whether or not that state is socialist or communist or capitalist then becomes, but at the very beginning, you need to have a state. You need to have individuals that represent the country. In Lebanon, because thanks to the French, uh, because we have a sectarian political system, that means that our political leaders never represent the state. They re represent this old artificial entity called sects. So consequently, when we have, uh, you know, for um, the, the Minister of Foreign Affairs or the Minister of Interior, or any of these governmental officials that are supposed to represent the entire country, when they speak, they actually represent the sect that they claim to represent and not the country. So we never had a state for it to fail. Right now, though, Lebanon, most definitely, it's institutions that were once built that were then devalued by Rafi al-Hariri and his compatriots who comprise, by the way, all the political sectarian parties in Lebanon. They all support him. These institutions have been hollowed out. Even when people speak about Riyad Salemi and claim that at one time or another he was successful, 
what merits a successful economy? What are the indicators for a successful economy? One can claim at the very least that a successful economy is one, it's one in which its youth do not have to leave. One in which its youth, upon graduating with a college degree, can actually find employment at the very basic aspect. And yet, why is it that in Lebanon, more of our youth left Lebanon after the war ended in 1991 than left during the war from 1975 to 1991? Imagine more Lebanese left because of an economic difficulty than they left because of the violence itself. So from 1991 to 2018, we had almost half of two generations of our youth leave the country. The, this is an indicator of a failed economy. This is an indicator of a government that cannot and chooses not to govern. So is Lebanon a failure right now in terms of, of its institutions and its uh, so-called governmental bodies? Yes, most definitely. But is Lebanon a state? It has yet to become one. Anith, uh, what needs to happen? I mean, I keep hearing actually the same argument from intellectuals like yourselves uh, that the problem is really with Lebanon's sectarian system. And of course, there are those who support the sectarian system because they get to benefit. But in you know, if I were in your shoes, I mean, what needs to happen to move away from the sectarian system? What 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 are the plans for? Uh, for example, I know you guys are part of uh, of this movement. Well, uh, first of all, uh, I would let Rania speak about I am not a member, um, but I would not go as far as to limit the problem to the sectarian system. Sure, it is it is a problem in terms of governance, but there is we cannot deny the fact that there are also financial interests at play, and these financial interests obey to, to, to no ideology in the end, except the ideology of profit. So I don't think the people like, you know, the, the top 1% in Lebanon in terms of uh, capital, uh, they don't care if it's a sectarian system or whatnot. And at the same time, I cannot claim that if there is only a civil state in Lebanon, then all the problems would be solved. Because the nature, because, you know, we can have a very aggressive capitalist system in Lebanon, a communist system or a socialist system. And to get out of this crisis, we're talking about financial decisions. In order to come up with these financial decisions, of course, we cannot do this, we cannot do this under a sectarian system. But, but if, I, if I want to envision a future for Lebanon to get out of this crisis, I am not going to limit myself and say, yes, I need a civil state. No, I need a civil state for sure. But I also need appropriate policies that would make sure that everybody has access to their basic rights, to their needs. And there's a fair system that, is, uh, that basically uh, allows everybody equal opportunity. If I, if I could add to what Annie said, I completely agree. And I think what we need to have is this recognition that Lebanon is not a company. When we look at Lebanon as a company that is going bankrupt, then we seek to sell what remains of its assets so that we can recoup our losses. And this is the discussion that's being made, you know, among certain uh, Lebanese economic elite and among certain individuals in France and the United States and the World Bank and the IMF. Okay, But once we recognize that Lebanon is a country with people and therefore we need to rebuild the country, thereby we can think about what kind of financial investments we need to do in Lebanon. And how can we protect our people? So we first need to have this change in mindset. Lebanon is not a company, it is a country. And once we recognize that it is a country, we want it to be a country that holds on to its citizens, 
that helps the citizens work forward, which means it has to be a country that is a civil state. And Anise is completely correct. Being a civil state in and of itself is not enough. So it has to be a civil state that provides health care to all its citizens and residents, that provides exemplary education to all its citizens and residents for free. These have to be for free because these are rights and not privileges that changes the tax laws in the country to make housing affordable and accessible and egalitarian across the country that develops public transportation networks and thereby eases this dependency on fossil fuel consumption, which we now spend a lot of our money on fossil fuel consumption in the country because we do not have a reasonable public transportation network. All of these are examples of a government that would then seek to build investments in the country as a whole, rather than to look at the country as how can I individually benefit. So we do have a financial plan to work our way forward. But again, it begins with this shift in in perspective. It begins with this recognition that the very individuals that led us to these crises, and by these individuals, I mean every single sectarian political party that refuses to look at Lebanese as citizens and continues to look at us as hostages of a sect into which we are born, that once we recognize that these individuals and the political parties they claim to represent cannot lead us forward, that we need a different framework to lead us forward, then we will have a different viewpoint on the elections if we are going to have elections. We will have a different viewpoint as to demanding that politicians actually have proposals instead of politicians simply claiming to represent Christians and Muslims. And then we would also have a different regard as to the foreign policies. We know very well what the United States is trying to do in Lebanon. We know very well that the United States' aim in Lebanon is not stability. It is not democracy. It is not human rights. It is not an end to corruption. Rather, all the United States is concerned about is to make sure that we become a vessel for normalization with the Israeli enemy. So once we recognize that, I appeal to the Arab Americans within the United States to change any demands they have to the government in the United States away from imposing sanctions on Lebanon and rather a step towards looking at Lebanon as having the need to build democratic institutions indigenously by our own. So basically, all that I ask of the American government, leave us the hell alone. If they could just leave us the hell alone, we can start to build forward. And that is my appeal to Arab Americans themselves, because I know that coming from the U.S. government, anything that they have will have the U.S. government's interest in mind and not the interest of the Lebanese people. We do have the capability to build our country forward once we release ourselves from the hostages of sectarianism and once we release ourselves from this idea that we are fated to this demise, but we are not fated to this demise. Well, you know, no one likes to give up power. I mean, this is not only relegated to the Arab world. You know, we've seen it right here in the United States with Donald Trump. He didn't want to leave the the White House. Uh, I mean, is it easy to get rid of the the ancien regime? Uh, Will this lead to violence? Are you afraid of violence, really? Well, I am more afraid of the violence uh, that will be instigated by misery and poverty than by, uh, than by the violence that will be instigated by the sectarian leaders. Because these people, they are warlords and they have already fought one big war and they literally came out alive by pure chance. 
These people, they, they, they under, the only thing they actually understand is war and violence. So I don't think they would go as far as to recreate another war, especially when uh, foreign support is not that guaranteed for them. Uh, whereas um, implosion on the inside from all of this misery and poverty, I mean, I, I cannot imagine somebody uh, just uh, staying quiet while they'll see they, their, their children starving or not being able to afford their medication or, or pulling them out of school, you know, this would lead to violence for sure. And I think here, the, um, because you, you spoke about how uh, somebody might relinquish power or not, and I think this very kind of violence, when once you want to assess, like, it, should I stay in power or not, what are the costs versus benefits? And if I if I say yes, like the costs are too great, I would do I would just leave. Yeah, you know, like which is what Donald Trump did in the end. Like he could have started, you know, <laughs> a second American civil war, but did he do it? No, because the risks were too great. So I think this is the same thing that that that, that is at play here in Lebanon, and we can. Uh, I mean, appealing to reason is difficult, but I think at some point the facts are going to be clear. If we continue on this path, only misery and vi uncontrollable violence will ensue. So, so this is when we can say, okay, we're all here, we're all staying, we're all Lebanese, whether you are a sectarian leader, whether, whether you're not, you know, so let's discuss and ha have a fruitful conversation about what are we going to do with the future of our country? Because you're not going to like what's going to happen, and we're definitely not going to like what's going to happen. Yes, I agree completely. You know, Anis, uh, you blew my mind to tell you the truth when you said as a medical doctor, you're now making $50. And I want to repeat that. I'm, I'm sorry to use this as an example to our audience because our audience, when they listen to this, that a medical doctor makes $50 a month in Lebanon, maybe they'll comprehend uh, the level of poverty and, and, and the economy, what's going on in, 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 in the country. It's really, uh, you know, I don't know how, how, how are you guys making it? I mean, how are people when you're telling me, I mean, someone with a family of five or, or how, how do they survive? Yeah, well, unfortunately, I am not an example to be taken, you know, because I, I come from a somewhat privileged background. And, and if I, coming from that background, are, are, am making $50 a month. What about all of the rest? You know, what about the majority of people? And, and honestly, it's really difficult to imagine how these people are making it. I mean, there's really abhorrent stories about uh, just people making it day by day. And, and I think here, this is something that the sectarian leaders are, are using very efficiently. They're weaponizing people's misery by providing, uh, you know, a carton of uh, aid in terms of, you know, basic necessities, food and, and just stuff, whatever they might need, uh, just to make it a, a couple more days. This is how people are thinking today. And this is a very dangerous mindset to have, especially in times of crisis, because if you cannot envision a future, you're definitely not going to invest yourself in that future, in this vision. So, uh, and, and this is something that, they, that the sectarian leaders understand perfectly. They're trying to reduce people's needs to their basic necessities. I don't think any human being's ambition is just to eat and, and survive day by day. Human beings have ambitions. They wanna, they wanna live. They wanna, they wanna be comfortable. They wanna feel secure. They wanna, uh, you know, they wanna realize their dreams. And this is something that disappears in times of crisis. And this is something that we must hold on to as much as we can. Rania, you spoke about uh, keeping the U.S. out, the meddling of the United States, which we know it has a history of meddling in in government affairs uh, all over the globe. 
others will say, well, what about Iran? You know, they'll, they'll, they'll throw that, they'll say, well, Hezbollah and, 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 and Iran and the Saudi influence, and then what's the role of, what's the role of Israel in, in this whole equation? Um, well, I specifically brought up the United States for two reasons. One, I am speaking to an American public, and two, the United States is um, the father figure of Israel, and Israel is our enemy as Lebanese. Israel is our enemy not only because it continues to occupy and decimate Palestinian lives, but also because of its very construct. So long as Israel remains a Zionist state, so long as Israel remains an apartheid state, not only so long as Israel occupies Palestinian lands, but so long as Israel remains Zionist, it will continue to be an existential enemy to Lebanon. So that is particularly why I highlight the United States role here, because the United States, by holding on to its allegiance to Israel, poses a greater threat to Lebanon than any other foreign interest. However, you are completely correct in stating that there are foreign involvements by Iran, by Saudi Arabia, by Syria, by Turkey, by England, by France. I mean, they're all, in, they're, they're all interfering in Lebanon. And the reason they are interfering in Lebanon is because, as we say in Arabic, they are interfering in Lebanon because we have allowed them to interfere, because we have built an idea in Lebanon that we cannot solve our problems. So let us appeal to Saudi Arabia and Syria. Let us appeal to Iran and the United States. Let us see what they have to say as to who will be appointed the next prime minister in Lebanon. It, it's, it's horrific. I mean, we know that the American ambassador and the French ambassador actually met with the president in Lebanon and they gave him particular names for him to be considering as the next prime minister. Wow. It, it's abhorrent that this is talked about in Lebanon as if it were regular operations, as if this is accepted behavior. It should not be acceptable for any foreign government, for any foreign government to involve itself in the formation of a national government. We would oppose it in the United States. We would oppose it in Russia. And yet we find it to be acceptable in Lebanon. So it starts there. Yes, there are foreigners that are being involved in, in the Lebanese politics. The way we can stop them is by actually building a state by building a unity amongst Lebanese as Lebanese, instead of as this artificial concept that we are Maronites and Shia and Sunnis and Greek Orthodox and Druze. We are not. The way we choose to worship God should be a very personal element separated from our national laws and our national legislation. Will we get there today? Will this be a path forward? That is the critical aspect and the difficulties that Anis presented and he presented them very powerfully are an additional challenge because we know historically that in times of crisis, people do not move to the left. People tend to move to the right. In times of crisis, people's insular identities actually become stronger rather than recognizing their real identities. And here becomes the need to organize politically and the need for oppositional parties to organize most effectively on the ground so that we can be able to be present on the ground and show our people that there is a pathway forward, separate from sectarianism, separate from uh, capitalism on steroids, and most definitely separate from being hostage to foreign interests. I can talk to you all day long. Uh, unfortunately, we're running out of time, but I wanted to ask you, Anise, uh, since you are a medical doctor, we haven't spoken about the coronavirus, this global pandemic. And what's the situation in, in Lebanon now? 
Well, um, now there is another wave on the horizon because it's also about the nature of our economic system and the nature of our crisis. Uh, the sectarian leaders, instead of remedying the crisis, instead of prioritizing the health of their citizens, they're opening up the borders to anyone who has a bit of dollars to spend in Lebanon. They did that uh, in uh, December last year for the holidays, and they're doing it again now in, uh, in the summer period. And now the cases are, have started to rise again. And uh, one more thing, I think like in a, a recent study that was done, I think last month by the Ministry of, um, of Health showed that 70% of people had already been infected by the virus. And it's wow. not even vaccinated, just infected, which is one of the worst policies anybody can, can take. Uh, it's a policy that has been heavily criticized by the WHO because you're just telling everybody, okay, if you die, you die. If you live, you live. And honestly, this, this really reflects again the nature of the of the sectarian Lebanese system. It's all about um, you know profit over people. We don't care whatever happens to people as long as there's money coming in. Iranian Masri uh, and East Germany, thank you for coming on Arab Talk. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Well, that's the voice and the faces of uh, Dr. Rania Masri and Anissa Germani. Um, you know, Jamal, I have to tell you, I try to keep up on a lot of the events, obviously, going on in the Arab world and Lebanon, that Lebanon fell off the political media map for the last number of months is really, is really sad and tragic because people of Lebanon, the Lebanese economy their healthcare infrastructure, the political unrest. I don't think Lebanon is a failed state per se, but it's on the brink of collapse. I don't know what to describe it as. Uh, Dr. Rani al-Masri, she said she doesn't believe in this terminology, a failed state, because right. she does not think that Lebanon is even a state. Right. has not even achieved this level, but you're, you're correct. We haven't spoken about Lebanon. The big story was that huge explosion at the harbor, if you remember, and then things disappeared. Then, right. then uh, a week ago, after nine months of negotiating, uh, you know, Hariri uh, decides, well, I can no longer form a government. I'm stepping down. Uh, so it's a whole total chaos. Meanwhile, and this is something you're going to find very interesting, and I know you, you, you looked at this very carefully, uh, you know, in the interview. Uh, just um, Dr. Anis uh, Germani, he's a medical doctor. Right. Okay, so he's a medical doctor. He's been working in the field. So he also spoke, he spoke to us about the disaster, the other global disaster, which is the COVID, which they're doing terribly Terrible. Uh, in Lebanon. But the shocking thing that I know it shocked you for a highly educated medical doctor with the devaluation of the Lebanese lira, he makes, are you ready for this? He makes $50 a month. It's, it's unimaginable. That's disturbing, and, and, disturbing and he beyond belief. he considers himself one of the fortunate ones because of um, his situation, maybe his family. Yeah, but Jamal, but that says, speaks to the economic devastation that is going on in Lebanon right now. And it speaks to the failure of its government. And I think uh, Rania is right talking about not achieving statehood because 
it, they could barely function in terms of providing day-to-day services, basic services, infrastructure, health, food, distribution. That's barely, barely functioning in Lebanon right now, and they don't have a functioning parliament either. So, Well, the big thing also that uh, Rania spoke about is that and that's her sentiment and the sentiment of many uh, Lebanese, unless they are in bed with the government and all right. the sectarian warlords, uh, as as they've been described, she does not want any foreign interference, especially from the United States. Right. Because she's very well aware, whatever the United States touches is just going to go into ruin. So, just, so basically she says, thanks, but no thanks. Right. But we have to say that to all of the other proxy players Saudi Arabia, UAE, the influence from Iran. There are, I mean, Lebanon, Israel, is, and of course, she the, says the Israelis, the Lebanese yeah. reject any Israeli interference, and of course, they consider Lebanon as, I mean, they consider Israel as the enemy. Right, but the Israelis still consider large parts of Syria uh, part of their own. I mean, there's still large segments of Syria that are under Israeli occupation in the Golan Heights, Jamal. So, I mean, it's tragic to see such an awesome, beautiful country with beautiful people. And Beirut used to be described as the Paris of the Middle East. Or we used to say Paris is the uh, Beirut of uh, Europe. But yeah, and and what you have now is, is, is chaos and devastation. And you know, the COVID pandemic is wreaking havoc, not just among the everyday Lebanese, but you, you have a million Syrian refugees. You have how many hundreds of thousands of Palestinian refugees from 48, uh, multi-generational who, who are getting exposed to the More COVID. than 400,000. Yeah, who are getting exposed to COVID. And I should say, you know, getting exposed to the Delta uh, variant now, which is really... Uh, deeply and far more infectious than all the other variants. So, you know, we 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 will pay more attention to Lebanon on this show, obviously. But the world has turned its back on Lebanon. Uh, the media has turned its back on Lebanon. When was the last time you heard about anything having to do with Lebanon in the American media, Jamal? Not since not not since the big harbor explosion. Right. You're listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco, 89.5 FM. We're going to go to another topic. Yeah, and and the topic, yeah, Jabal, we're going to have terrorist ice cream now, you and me. Well, listen, uh, Zionists are melting over ice cream. (laughs) I mean, I don't know what what I was going to call. I was going to call the show this, but I'm not. Anyway, but that's what's going on. Yeah, they're going crazy. For I'm sure a lot of our uh, viewers and listeners know about the topic, but in case you don't know, Ben and Jerry's, which is actually a delicious ice cream, one one of my favorites and my vices is that, uh, I mean, I love ice cream. And uh, so they uh, made an announcement that they were going to stop selling ice cream in Israeli settlements, in Israeli colonial settlements. And so Israeli politicians just, they just Unbelievable. been going berserk. I mean, this is all about ice cream. We're talking about ice not. cream. We're not talking about it's, weapons. No, We're not Jamal. talking about airplanes. We're not talking about... For the hasbarista, as, you're, as you like to call them, and it's a great word, 
Um, they're, and I like your phrase, they're melting over this. They're, they're having seizures about this, political seizures about it, because the reach of Ben and Jerry as social activists in the United States and worldwide, they are celebrated among the most, um, you know, honest, forthright, committed social activists who are capitalists at the same time, you know, who run this multi-million dollar enterprise are celebrated by social activists and human rights activists all over the world. And for them, finally, finally, finally to join the BDS movement, even well, if it's... Well, just, I just want to write, uh, I mean, read quickly from Ben and Jerry's because yeah. it's a very simple, you know, the move uh, by Ben and Jerry's simply limits just to repeat the sale of their products to supermarkets in Israel that are within the countries uh, outside. I mean, they didn't say they're going to stop selling ice cream in Tel Aviv, just to be clear. Right. They're saying in in Israel's internationally recognized borders. That's the, which translates to that most of the world does not recognize Israel's sovereignty over the West Bank, Jerusalem, and Gaza. So that's and most of the settlers live in in, in, in outside Gaza. They live in the in, in in the West Bank. So that's what they're saying. And then they're saying that uh, that Ben and Jerry said that the sales of its ice cream in the territories sought by the Palestinians are inconsistent with our values. So that right. ex- speaks to what you're saying about uh, Ben and Jerry's values. Yeah, and Ben and Jerry's values. And let 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 me just back up a little bit. Ben and Jerry human rights and social activists committed to Black Lives Matter, police reform, all of these things, you know, very progressive, have spoken quietly about illegal Israeli occupation and settlements over the years. But they haven't really put their money where their mouth is. This is, even though I consider it, you know, dipping your toe in the water, maybe even jumping into the water up to the waist, for them to have such a strong statement, and we know it's strong by the response, Jamal, is a great first step for Jen and Ber- uh, Ben and Jerry. We have Israelis talking about ice cream, Ben and Jerry's ice cream as being terrorist ice cream now. That's what I said at the beginning of the show. Well, uh, you are, just to say, you are referring to Israel's new president, Isaac Herzog. Right. Who called the boycott of Israel, of Ben and Jerry's, a new kind of terrorism. This is... Uh, just on Wednesday, uh, and then and then he said uh, that the boycott uh, of Israel is a new sort of terrorism, economic terrorism, and that uh, terrorism tries to harm the citizens of Israel and the economy of Israel. We must uh, oppose this boycott and terrorism in any form. So he's delivering. He, he he's actually want to deliver this message to Congress right here in the United States, to the President of the United States. He wants the United States to pass laws, which, as you know, some localities right. have passed have No, they've passed tried laws, to. They've tried, tried to. to uh, uh, Anti-BDS laws. He really wants to tell the world, not just the United States, but because Ben & Jerry's, of course, an American company, started as such. And he wants to tell them, you know, we're going to decide for you What's what best you want to eat, what you want to, what's best for you. Just what, yeah. if, 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 what you, you, you know, what you want to sell, what you want to buy, what you want to eat, what you want, how, how do you want to dress? Right. And they're, they're willing. And what's, what's going to be really hypocritical, as we know, Jamal, you're going to have Democrats and Republicans who are going to stand with this statement. You're going to have Chuck Schumer 
as well as Dear, it's already yeah they're gonna it's happening yeah they're it, they're gonna say it they're gonna say bad bill, sh- shame mayor on shame on you of, New, of new york mayor bill de blasio of new york just recently said that the uh, that he wants to boycott he has he wants to have his own boycott of ben and jerry's telling reporters in city hall on tuesday that he won't be eating cherry garcia for a while I have break. Like, look how stupid is this? Is this, I, it's is this very stupid, stupid or what? I'm just going to call it straight out stupid. Yeah, but here, here's the part of it that's not stupid, Jamal. The Israelis and their surrogates never miss an opportunity to shoot themselves in the foot. And they've done it again. Because guess what they're doing? They're giving Ben and Jerry ice cream an even greater platform. And I have breaking news for all the husbaristas. Hey, I ate Ben and Jerry's yesterday. Yeah, I, I'll do I the same. I decided like, you know, yeah, I want to eat it, some Ben and Jerry's. It's just going to increase sales. So it's a brilliant marketing move on behalf of Ben and Jerry. Listen, oh, I'm going to add I'm gonna add a little bit to your blood, blood pressure, just <laughs> also the uh, Kashrut authorities. These are the right. rabbinical who decide to certify things as, as kosher. They also <laughs> call to remove... Their kosher certification from all Ben uh, and Jerry's ice cream products after the decision to work on the West. Yeah, well, the, the Hasbaristas are are shooting themselves. They they never miss an opportunity to to make a a bad situation even worse for them. And this is a statement coming from Ben and Jerry, who we you know who are proud to call themselves Jewish Americans, but are proud to commit themselves to you know justice and they're saying no more could we support the illegal colonial settlements you know in occupied palestine i have a hunch jamal this might lead to a general bds resurgence because people will say well if benny ben and jerry's are on board with this who many people look up to it'll help facilitate the bds movement here in the united states you're uh, you're right. I mean, what they're doing is providing more uh, traction to this decision. Hundred percent. And this is a decision that should be left to Americans to decide uh, and the public to no, decide. No, Jamal, we should let the Israelis decide what exactly. ice cream we eat. Shouldn't not we? What uh, Herzog of Israel decides, and it's not going to affect me eating Ben and Jerry's if it has kosher or, or if it has halal. Which, by the way. <laughs> Uh, or or whatever I mean I, I but for some you know it's another idea you know maybe they should certify it halal they uh, will there are 1.8 billion Muslims around the world they also like to eat ice cream right I mean if you if you want to play this game to me it's a good product uh, regardless of uh, you know if it's kosher or if it's halal whatever if it's if it's, if you like it you like it if you don't like it but when I, don't buy it but what I but, say to Herzog and to Naftali Bennett Keep saying really stupid things, and I'm waiting for the Congress and the Senate and leadership in both the Democrat and the Republican parties to say stupid things. It's just going to increase sales of Ben & Jerry and bring even more prominence to the power of the BDS movement. So I say to all the Hasbaristas, Jamal, bring it on. Well, I'm also going to say... It's apartheid, stupid, just like during Bill Clinton's right, campaign. It's the right. economy, stupid. It's apartheid, stupid. Well, and so if they don't get it, that you have the Human Rights Watch labeling Israel as apartheid, 
their own human uh, rights organization, B'Tselem, labeling Israel as apartheid, and they don't get it. They keep burying their heads in the right, sand. Right. And now they're all up in, uh, twisted into a pretzel over ben, ben and Jerry's ice cream and they're melting down. I well, don't that know tells to say. You, well, it's, it's been a, apartheid, it, stupid. Yeah, and guess what, Jamal? It's been a bad day for apartheid Israel because just this week, it was revealed in an article by the Washington Post that the Israeli company NSO has been selling spyware and been able to tap into the phones of journalists all over the world, diplomats, government officials all over the world, and that this spyware that was developed by the Israeli uh, uh, company NSO has deep ties to the Israeli military. And I, I'm just going to say it for what it is, Jamal. I mean, the, the apartheid regime of Israel needs to be held accountable equally for the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. And every journalist now needs to be worried that they're being spied on by software developed by the Israelis. This is the uh, spy spyware tool called Pegasus. Right. Uh, you're right. It was uh, developed by the Israeli organization NSO group, and it uh, it was sold to government uh, countries all over the world, including Hungary, Rwanda, India, uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, and, and, and others. And by the way, he said politicians, uh, I believe I read in the article that uh, Macron of France also That's right. uh, discovered uh, he was spied on, and they also said that Jamal Khashoggi is the Saudis. This is how they knew his communications and lured him into coming into Istanbul in Turkey where he was murdered. So uh, Pegasus, it's used according to the investigation to infiltrate smartphones uh, via apps like iMessenger. That's why uh, we talk about iPhones and WhatsApp. Both both right. these, Facebook owns WhatsApp and, uh, and, and Messenger, uh, that's an iPhone product, or by having it's uh, the victims um, inadvertently clicking on on links right to uh, containing uh, the vulnerability so this is just the tip of the iceberg you but don't Jamal, know who, are, look, how many can, governments have been affected yeah but can i ask you a question are you really surprised by this i'm not surprised by this but uh, the fact actually i'm surprised that now it has been revealed i don't know what iphone is going to do about it probably they're gonna have you up, uh, update your software yeah. and add an extra patch or something like this. But then you got millions and millions of people use WhatsApp, millions and millions of people use Messenger. So I don't know what they're going to do about it. But but uh, surely, I mean, I own an iPhone and millions of people across the globe own iPhones. And if they're targeting, basically, here's Shamal Khashoggi paid with his life for this. And they said that was installed on his on his phone. And so you don't know the extent. I think the damage is much bigger than I agree. was revealed so far. Yeah, that's exactly right, Jamal. And here's the thing. We have been talking about this for so many years now. We have the uh, the Congress and the Senate, you know, falling all over themselves to support the apartheid regime of Israel. But if you ask the question, which country spies more aggressively on the United States more than any other country and gets caught? Mm, it gets, shall, I, shall I scratch my head and, I wonder, and see if I can remember? I have, break, I have breaking <laughs> news. It's not China. It's not Russia. It's 
what the United States calls, what Biden calls, and Democrats and Republicans call their number one ally, the apartheid regime of Israel, is the number one spy structure uh, country in the world that spies on the United States and attempts to steal, you know, national security secrets. And yes, Jonathan Pollard, who is released and living as a, you know, as a free man now, uh, on stolen land, by the way, is as has been released, and he did more damage to the national security interests of the United States than any other spy previous. And now he's a happy Israeli citizen. He's given up his American citizenship, and he's living freely. And now we have the Israeli NSO group spying and being responsible for killing journalists. It's like, when are people going to wake up? Is this really our ally if they're allowed to spy on, you know, uh, spy on journalists and spy on government officials and, and continue their spying activities within the national security apparatus of the United States. It's, it's pretty disturbing, Jamal. You honestly. know what will be interesting, Jess, is that if NSA or whatever other uh, agencies, if they did an experiment, you and I probably won't hear about it unless somebody leaks it out and collected all the smartphones that in in the possession of congressmen and congresswomen and senators oh, yeah. and the administration to yeah. see how many of the spyware, how many have the spyware. I can guess you, Americans will be shocked. Yeah, I think that's find a great... Out that's to, great. Because if you're saying, if, if they're spying on, on, on President Macron of France, this is just, you know, tip of the iceberg. How many do you think have been uh, downloaded to these to these iPhone and other smartphones in the United yeah, States? Yeah, and I, I think Congress. I think we'll have to continue to follow this story, Jamal, because I think its impact and its scope will be far beyond even what we're talking about today, and we're going to see the so-called number one ally of the United States being part and parcel of the largest attempt to undermine journalists, you know, all over the world. I mean, we hold the apartheid regime of Israel equally responsible in death of Jamal Khashoggi's death. And uh, it's very disturbing. Hey, we only have a few more minutes, Jamal, and I wanted to get your opinion about this CNN documentary on Jerusalem. I'm skeptical anytime the the mainstream media does a documentary about Jerusalem. Um and I know you got invited to be part of it, but you decided to opt out. But what's your take on this? Well, we'll give a quick update every week because it's a mini series. It's going to be weekly, so we don't have a lot of time. So, so th this past Sunday, CNN they've been advertising it like crazy to watch it. So, this, the first episode aired this past Sunday. And so I'm not going to comment on the quality and commentary and all, all, all these things, the way they wrapped it. But what I'm saying, if someone that I am a Jerusalemite, proud Jerusalemite, Palestinian, who has a very long history in Jerusalem, who many Palestinians, you know, we trace our roots back to the Canaanites and to the Jebusites and others. You know, here's the funny thing. I mean, to me, they started the whole history. They're mixing and conflating right. religion with history, right. historical event with biblical events. So they start the whole thing, like the history of Jerusalem, 
started with uh, King David and King Solomon and, and, and that. And then just as a small footnote, they say, oh, by the way, the, Phil- uh, the Philistines were there, you know, and, and, and by the way, the Canaanites were there and they, they fought the Philistines and they fought the Canaanites. And oh, by the way, Jerusalem, who, which was, by the way, established by the Jebusites. Right. 2,000 years before King David, you know. Small. And then they say, in a small, just mention, kind of a passing mention, you know, when King David went to Jerusalem, you know, he wanted to unite the tribes of Israel and, and Jerusalem uh, was under the Jebusite, so he had somebody kind of like his spies there, and then he took over Jerusalem. So that's it. The history, because the whole idea is trying to establish the identity of Jerusalem, and this is following into this whole Zionist narrative that it began with King David and King Solomon and the Bible, is historically inaccurate. Well, it's a even, historical... Even, even if you try to prove that actually King David did exist, and, and all these stories and, 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 and uh, right. Goliath and David's story right. did happen, they glossed over a rich history because yeah, but these are I, advanced civilizations like the Canaanites and the Philistines and the Jebusites. They just like mentioned them in passing and that's episode one. So that's my critique on episode I one. I think that's really great, Jamal, but I think you're being too kind. They basically are misrepresenting and lying about Jerusalem 2,000 years before King David whomever, you know, was fully functioning, high-functioning, well-organized society. And in Jerusalem... It already had had a wall built by the Jebusites for its defenses. That's why it kind of managed to stay independent for a long time. Exactly. But they happen to, you know, not highlight that. That becomes a footnote rather than a historical reality. And you're exactly right. They confused biblical stories with historical fact. And in my mind, that's not serious journalism. That's something else. You've been listening to Arab Talk on KPO San Francisco, 89.5 FM. Go to our website, arabtalkradio.com, to download our latest episodes, and we will talk to you next week. Enjoy Ben and Jerry's, and we'll see you next week.